Well, we've been having fun in Revelation. We come to uh, chapter 11 tonight. 11 and 12 are, are, are fun chapters um, as we get into 11 and 12 and really even 13. Uh, we, do, we do need to just kind of remember to agree on the fact that scholars see these chapters differently. And um, so do people in West, so do people in West, those who are not scholars see it differently. Um, and also there, there are some things in these chapters that, that even the scholars who've been studying this for decades agree on this, on this one thing, and that is that there are some parts of this section that we just won't ever know for sure. We just won't understand all of it yet. And we have to be okay with that. Um, I want to chase that rabbit a little bit before we get into it. There are, it is important for us to learn everything we can learn about God's Word. There are parts of faith that we are not going to understand. I want to suggest to you that that is faith, living in the question, not having all the answers. If there was a book that explained every detail of God and every detail of life and every detail of future, if there was a book that explained every detail and a teacher gave you all of that information and you could read all of that information for yourself, where would be faith? That would be an exchange of information. It would be education, but no faith. I think there's a reason that we don't understand everything completely. I think that keeps us in a position of dependence on God. If I understood everything, then my pride would make me think I don't need him anymore. Does that, does that ring true? Does that make sense? Faith is living in the question. I don't know, and I'm okay not knowing because I know the one who does know. I trust him. I believe that God knows. I believe that God's in charge, and so I can live in that faith. All right? With that little... Uh, precursor, that, that, uh, that little rabbit chasing. Uh, let's go into Revelation 11. John is uh, still describing for us uh, a vision that he's having that is occurring right here. Those of you who were, who were here last week may remember our little uh, chart here. When we started Revelations, uh, Revelation chapters um, 2 and 3, uh, talk about the seven churches. After the seven churches, then we get, we're introduced to the seven seals. The seven seals um, are keeping the scroll closed. And each time they break a seal, something happens. After they break six seals, and they, by they, I mean the lamb. After the lamb breaks six seals, there's an interlude. So I drew a little stop sign. In the interlude, John gives us a break for a minute 
and he show, tells us about a vision that he has. And he explains that vision. Then we go back to the seventh seal. And the seventh seal does not lead to the seven trumpets. The seventh seal is the seventh trumpets. In other words, it's not that you have the seventh seal and then the first trumpet. The breaking of the seventh seals is seven trumpets. So then he breaks down those seven trumpets. Let's look at those. He gives us six trumpets, and then there's an interlude, another stop sign. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but uh, just coming from my own um, assumption, I think that we have the interludes because without it, it would be too heavy. It'd be too much. It would, there's just so much judgment, so much wrath during the time that we call the tribulation. And by the way, all of this happens during the seven years, the time of the tribulation. And I think it, was just, it would just be so overwhelming that in his wisdom, God gives us six seals and then we get to take a break before we have to go to the trumpets. Then we get six trumpets and we take a break before we have to go to the seventh trumpet, which is the seven bowls. bowls. Think of bowls containing God's wrath being poured out. Think of it in those terms. And then even there, you'll see when we get to the bowls, we're going to talk about six of them, then we're going to take a break. All right? So we are in this, in this break, if you will, in this interlude, these chapters in which John gives us a vision uh, before that seventh and final trumpet is blown. He, uh, last time he left us saying that an angel gave him a little scroll. He said, take it and eat it. It's going to taste in your mouth like honey, but it's going to turn your stomach bitter. And we talked about how oftentimes that's the way prophecy specifically works, but God's word in general can work that way. It tastes sweet because God is, is talking to us. It's sweet because it's from him. And we want to know, we want to learn, we want to, to communicate with God. And so it's sweet tasting in our mouth. But then it gets into our hearts, it gets into our soul and our, our, our being. And it can be sour in that it reminds us that we're not right with God, that we need to change this, change that. We need to repent. We need to grow more, whatever it is. Prophecy is that way particularly. We're grateful that God is telling us. He's prophesying through us. He's telling us what to expect. That's a sweet taste. But boy, we sure hate to see what the prophecy is saying. There's some terrible judgments coming. And so that was John's experience. It was sweet to the taste, but it, it caused a, a sour stomach, if you will, as he thought about the terrible judgments that are coming. So it's right after that, that, that discussion that he says, Then, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. He says that he was given a staff. Now this is interesting because um, 
when John, when John first started talking about these kind of interactions with heaven, these kind of visions, if you will, and this interlude, he saw things happening. Now, in this second interlude, he's actually participating. The angel says, here, eat this scroll. And next, the angel says, here, come, come take this measuring stick. Uh, you can picture a yardstick if you want. It was really a reed. It, would, it worked differently, but we could picture a yardstick. You remember those yardsticks? Grandma used to have one above her door. They, the, 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 the frame of the door is just right to fit that yardstick up there. I never saw her use that yardstick one time to measure a thing, but boy, they sure did threaten little kids with it. But that measuring stick, he, he was given this measuring stick, and he was told to do something very interesting. He said, go and measure the temple. Why is that interesting at this point in history? There wasn't a temple. This takes place. John is on the Isle of Patmos. This takes place around 96 the year 96. And the temple was destroyed in the year 70. The Jews tried to rebel against the Romans and it didn't work and the Romans squashed them and destroyed the temple in the year 70. So now 25 give or take years later there is no temple. And John is told to go measure the temple. Now that question is answered in two ways. One, um, uh, traditional dispensationalists uh, like, like Larry, we've been talking about him. Many of the dispensationalists believe that folks have already started rebuilding a temple by this time in the tribulation, that they're actually rebuilding a temple. It could be that he is talking about go measure that temple. However, everything else in these interludes is happening through a vision. It's happening, he's seeing something in a supernatural experience. And so folks in my school, not my school of thought, folks who see it the way I do, think that this is not talking about a physical building to go measure, because we don't think it was, there was one at that time. Instead, staying in the supernatural vision like everything else has been in all these interludes, he is saying to John, notice that there is a limit to the temple. Measure it so that you see that there's a limit to the place where people meet God. What was the temple? The temple was the place where God lived, right? So you get into the New Testament, and we're told, we're taught that now this is the temple of God. The Christian, the human, the, 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 uh, the believer is where God lives. So this is the temple. So I think in this vision, he is told to measure a temple it's symbolic, saying, notice that there is a limit to the people who in, who, within whom God dwells. There's a limit to the number of true believers in the world. 
Yeah, yeah. Now the courtyard, the courtyard, and again, this is this is how this is one school of thought. What was the courtyard for? If you if you remember how the temp, the uh, temple was structured, there was the holy of holies, the innermost spot, and who could go in that place? Only the high priest, and only once a year. That's the holy of holies. Then there was the holy place. The, the, it's a little bit bigger than that. And that was a place where priests could go. And they went daily. Then there was a place where Jews could go. And then there was a place where Gentiles could go. Now, if you... If you recognize, if you see in Paul's letters that the new temple is the believer, and you hear him say, now in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, no male nor female. In other words, the only way to be the temple is to believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you were born a Hebrew or a Gentile, you come to him the same way in Jesus. Now, if that is the temple, we don't need the court of Gentiles anymore because there aren't Jews and Gentiles. They're believers, period. So I interpret this to say that measure only, only the, the holy place, only the place where God resides. Notice that there's a limit to the number of people who are true believers. We don't need the court of Gentiles anymore because there are, there's, there's not Jews and Gentiles. They're only true believers. So we're going to leave that court of Gentiles open. So he says there's a, in, in one, it's given a measuring rod like a staff, told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, the holy place, those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, if this is talking about a specific, a, a, a literal place, then he is saying God is showing us that he is protecting only a remnant of the Jews. Now, remnant is not a word we use often but it is a biblical concept. You go all the way back, I mean, to any major disaster, the, the flood. The flood killed everybody, but there was a remnant that was saved. The, you remember Noah and his sons and their wives? Okay, that's the remnant. Um, when, uh, when, when Jerusalem is destroyed, there is a remnant, a small group of people who were taken into exile, and then remember, they get to come back sometime. That's the way God has worked all throughout Jewish history. He has protected a remnant to keep the nation alive. If this is talking about a literal building, as many believe it is, then they have started rebuilding the temple during the tribulation. And he's saying, measure the part where the Jews are allowed, okay, because I'm going to protect a remnant of believing Jews. Those, those Jews who believe Jesus is Messiah. 
In other words, they are Christians. They're Christians who come from Jewish background. Either way, I don't think anybody believes that he literally was, was taking a yardstick and holding it up against some physical wall somewhere because there are no measurements listed at all. I think everybody understands that to one degree or another, it's symbolic. Saying measure it says that there is a limit to it. It also says that God owns it. We just bought these two little houses back here. The church just bought these two little houses. Signed the papers late last week. Paid for it. Everything's done except the owner needs to give us the keys. But we own, those, own that property. Now, as a process of buying that property, we had to get a surveyor to come out and mark it, measure it, to say this is what First Baptist Church will own. In Scripture, measuring a property sometimes means that it is being set aside for destruction. But many times in Scripture, measuring a property means that someone is declaring ownership of it. And that's what we had, that's what we did there, and that's, what we're, that's what's happening here. He says, measure the temple. In my view, measure the few Christians who are still alive, the believers, the, uh, whether they're Jew or Gentile, these are the true Christians. And notice that there aren't many of them during this time. If it's more literal than that, then he's saying, just look at the part of the temple that is for the Jews and notice that uh, there's only a small remnant of believing Jews. All right? Those are the two major schools of thought. So we good so far? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and, and then he does say that they're going to trample the holy city for 42 months. The nations the non-believing people who are alive during the last half of the tribulation are going to absolutely hate Christians and believing Jews. They already do pretty much, don't they? They're absolutely going to hate Christians and believing Jews. Um, by the way, thats I shouldn't even say it that way. Believing Jews are Christians. Uh, <clears throat> And it says that there's going to be this, this chaos. They're going to trample the holy city, uh, presumably uh, Jerusalem, for 42 months. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, is 42 months or 1,260 days longer? Which one is the longer of the two? Yeah, it's the same, isn't it? Yeah, that's three and a half years. That's the last half of the tribulation, what we traditionally call the great tribulation. Usually when we talk about the tribulation, we're talking about a seven-year period. When we talk about the great tribulation, that's the last half of it, the three and a half years. And during that three and a half years, there's going to be terrible chaos as people are trampling through Jerusalem, 
trying to destroy Christians, trying to destroy uh, Christians, whether they come from Gentile background or Jewish background. And during that, God is going to grant authority to two witnesses. And they're going to prophesy. During that time, it says they're clothed in sackcloth. Again, symbolic. Sackcloth has always meant throughout uh, biblical history. Sackcloth has always been a way to demonstrate grieving. Um, Sackcloth is not comfortable. It's, think of it like gruff burlap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's not comfortable. So people used to put it on as a way of saying, look, world, I'm suffering. Prophets particularly would wear sackcloth as a way of saying, I'm suffering because I know that, that the people I care about are about to face terrible judgment. The prophets would often wear it when they declared judgment of God. And so here are these two witnesses. They'll prophesy during the last half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, and they're not going to like it. They'll be clothed in sackcloth. So as soon as we get to verse 3, somebody always asks, who are the two witnesses? And um, if you want to spend all afternoon one day, Google Who are the two witnesses in Revelation 11? And you can spend all afternoon looking at all the possibilities. So I'm going to tell you who I think it might be, but before I do, let's agree there's a reason God didn't tell us. I don't think he wants, I don't think it's important. I don't think he wants us to know at this point. I think it very well could be two people we don't know, just two witnesses. That's a real possibility. If he had wanted us to know, he would have told us. So don't get too hung up on who are they, okay? Um, The reason there are two witnesses is because in Jewish tradition, you can see it spelled out for you in the Jewish law in the Old Testament, In order to verify that something is true, you had to have two witnesses. If two witnesses said, that guy killed that guy, well then, that was a done deal. That guy did kill that guy. All right? So the reason there are two witnesses is because this allows them to tell people the truth about Jesus and to tell them, if you, if you don't, um, unless, let me put it this way, unless you turn to Jesus as Messiah, then you will continue to suffer these terrible judgments, and the worst judgments are yet to come. That's the role of the two witnesses, to say Jesus is the answer. Without him, you continue this suffering and you'll live eternally without Jesus, without God. So they are here to tell the gospel and to prophesy the truth. He answers for us, kind of, he gives us a little hint in verse 4 on who these are. 
Verse 4, he says, These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So there you go. That cleared up for you? That's who are the two witnesses. Now we know. They're the, they are the olive trees and the lampstands. What he's actually doing is referring to the Old Testament. So many references in Revelation are, uh, are actually based on the Old Testament. If you, uh, if you want to look with me, I'm going to go to Zechariah. I want to show you. Remember, we're looking for olive trees and lampstands. In Zechariah 4. By the way, Zechariah is very close to the end of the Old Testament. You could probably get to Matthew and then turn to the left just a few pages. Zechariah chapter 4. Starting at verse 1, the angel who talked with me, and now this is the prophet Zechariah. This is not John. Remember, we're, we're over here in Zechariah. He sees visions as well. The angel who talked with me again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And then they get into a discussion. I'm going to fast forward through that discussion till we get to verse 11. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. In other words, that's why I've asked you three times now. Verse 14, then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. <coughs> there you go. That's who the two witnesses are. The two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the earth. Now, we understand it? We... That is the reference of oil and uh, and lampstand. By the way, there's a reason. If you think about uh, oil tree and lampstand, they actually go together. How how does the lampstand keep burning? The olive oil. If there's a tree right there, that tree is going to keep on producing oil. It's going to keep on lighting that light. So the light is going to keep on lighting. It's a symbol of eternity, really. It's a symbol of revival as well. Um, and so that's where that symbol uh, was used in Zechariah. Now John is referencing it. 
He's reminding people that there are two who stand with the Lord. Okay? Those two will be the two witnesses. I think option A, these are two people we don't even know. Option B, there is another time when we see Jesus standing with two very important witnesses. You remember when Peter, James, and John got to see something very special? They saw Jesus standing with two. Who was there? Moses and Elijah. I, I really lean toward this as our answer, but I will not say with any certainty because I don't think we're supposed to know God would have told us. But I really lean toward this as a, as a, as a probable answer. At the transfiguration, Jesus kind of moves out of his human limitations. <coughs> and the three closest disciples are allowed to see him in his glory. And as they see him in his glory, they recognize two who are standing by him. Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing prophecy. What do we have in the Old Testament? The law and the prophets. So I, I think it's very possible that uh, since those two stood with him at the transfiguration, they might <coughs> be the two witnesses who will stand with him again uh, toward the end. Then if you look in, at, at, at some of the things that happen over the next few, chapter, few uh, verses here, um, it kind of supports the argument that it might be Moses and Elijah. Look at verse 5. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. You remember what happened with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Elijah is up there, and they say, Baal's real, and he says, no, Yahweh is real, and he says, tell you what, let's find out who's real. Um, let's, let's put an altar over here, and y'all pray to Baal and see if he can bring fire down. And so they start to praying and hollering and dancing and cutting themselves and screaming and yelling and doing what all, and nothing happens. And Elijah says, all right, now it's my turn. So pour some water on there, pour some more water on there, pour even some more water on there. And then he prays to Yahweh and the fire comes down. So it was it, because of the words of his mouth, fire came down from heaven. Perhaps verse 5 is kind of a reference to that fire. If, if anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed because these two will be able to speak fire from their mouths and consume their foes. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Remember what Moses did in Egypt? Obviously God did it. But Moses announced all of those plagues in Egypt. So I think these might be references 
that suggests the two witnesses might be Moses and Elijah. Regardless, they have a very specific pur purpose. These two will stand and say, Jesus is Messiah, turn to him now, or judgment is going to get worse on you. When they have finished their testimony, by the way, that word for testimony is, is uh, martyrus, which is martyrdom. When they have finished their testimony, and this, by the way, is a total completion. They will be killed for what they're saying. There's a time when they have the power, they are protected, they have the power to vanquish their enemies, but that time is limited. After three and a half years, they will be killed for what they're saying. They, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. Now, you say, I don't remember hearing about a beast from a bottomless pit. The reason you don't remember it is because we haven't gotten there yet. Later, we're going to find out the beast from the bottomless pit is the one we've always called the Antichrist. But this is the first reference in Revelation. We're all the way, we're halfway through the book of Revelation. And this is the first time that there's a reference to the Antichrist. Um, when they have, I'm backing up to the beginning of seven. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. They'll be killed and their bodies will just be thrown out into the street so that everybody who walks by there can see them and laugh at them and mock them. And that's going to happen in the city that was symbolically one time called Sodom. And you can go back and see where, where some of the Old Testament prophets said, Jerusalem, you are basically Sodom. They were saying to God's people, you are so sinful, you're no better than Sodom. And they were symbolically called Sodom in some of the Old Testament prophecies. They were also called Egypt once or twice by the Old Testament prophets. Again, saying, you act like the Egyptians who worshiped false gods. Jerusalem, you're no better than they are. And toward the end of that verse, Jerusalem is the place where the Lord was crucified. So he is certainly referring to Jerusalem. They will be uh, the, uh, the Antichrist will lead some kind of revolt in which these two will be killed. They'll be thrown out into the street for people to mock them. And by the way, that is particularly egregious or particularly awful for John's Jewish audience to hear. Remember, he's writing to the seven churches. Seven churches are Christians, but they come from, many of them come from Jewish heritage. And in Jewish tradition, as soon as a person dies, you prepare the body. You take care of things immediately. It would be a horrible, terrible 
um, tragedy to let a body just lay out there and rot for three and a half days. And so this, uh, this is a, uh, an insult to these uh, believing leaders. Uh, verse 9 then, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. They hated to hear these guys tell the truth. And so now they rejoice that these two have finally been shut up. But after the three and a half days, a breath... Now, this is, this is amazing. Look at this. After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. I'll bet it did. These two witnesses, it's interesting to me too that he changes into past tense halfway through the story. He's saying this will happen. And then in his vision, it is so real to him, he switches to past tense. Their bodies are thrown out in the street for three and a half days. And then after three and a half days which for kind of strange reasons that we won't take time to get into, Jewish tradition would have said they are dead, dead, and no chance of anything but being dead. Three and a half days, the soul is so far gone, you can't, all right? And three and a half days, they're laying out there dead. How did God first bring Adam to life? Genesis 2, I think it's verse 7. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Once again, God breathes, which often refers to the work of his spirit, but he breathes into these two, and the life returns to their bodies, and they stand up on their feet, and everyone around them gets scared. Get, they get scared not only because these two are alive, but... I can't help but wonder, what do they look like? When God breathes that life back into them, are their bodies restored so they look the way they did? I don't know. Or do they look like they've been decaying for three and a half days? I don't, I don't know. But either way, you know that's a scary sight. Um, verse 12 then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So there was an ascension, just like Jesus when he died. There was, he ascended into heaven. You know, when Elijah, Elijah apparently didn't, didn't die in terms that we understand. They, right, he went in a chariot of fire up up to heaven, yeah. Now, if this is Moses and Elijah, poor dude done went through it twice, you know. <laughs> but, but he gets to rise again. He, he is ascended into heaven. Moses 
and Elijah, or let us be careful to say the two witnesses, whomever they are, are called to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. A tenth of the city was destroyed with this earthquake. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Everybody else got so scared, they gave glory to God. Now, does that mean that they became believers? I doubt it, based on what happens in the rest of the story. But it does mean they finally said, God, you're the real deal. We're scared of you. They finally learned to fear the Lord gave glory to him because only God can take a dude who's been dead three and a half days, breathe into him, make him alive, and take him up to heaven. And then it says the second woe was past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And we say, wait, what? what are the, what's the second woe? Well, you have to remember that we are in an interlude all right, remember, we're just taking a break. And this break is actually pretty long. If you go all the way back to chapter 8, 813. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Three. Whoa, whoa, whoa. To those who dwell on the earth. At the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now, at that point, there have been four trumpets. And then the eagle comes and says, now these last three trumpets are going to be woeful. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay? They blow the fifth trumpet, and all that works out. And then there's the verse that James took us to, 9-12. The first woe has passed. That was the fifth trumpet. <coughs> there are two still to come. Now we have just finished the sixth trumpet and the interlude, and that is the conclusion of the second woe. All right? That means that the last trumpet will be the last woe. And remember, the trumpet does not lead to bowls. The trumpet is the seven bowls. So the last woe is the last trumpet in which we experience God pouring out his, his wrath in the, the worst way, uh, the worst way uh, throughout this whole story. Okay? And we'll do that next time. The seventh trumpet is next time. We're finishing up the... Um, We are finishing the great tribulation, the, the three and a half years. It's going to take us a few more chapters, by the way, because he has other stories to tell as we go. But we're, we're finishing the, uh, the last <coughs> half of the tribulation. Assuming the tribulation is literally seven years, then we assume the great tribulation is literally three and a half years, then this trumpet that just blew describes for us what's happening in that three and a half years. The seventh trumpet fulfills the rest of 
that three and a half year time of tribulation. The purpose of the great tribulation is to uh, pour, God pours his wrath out on sin, out on those who reject him. At any time, during that time, folks can choose to believe in Jesus, but most still don't. Most still don't. And let me leave you with one little devotional thought that's, uh, that's not, uh, not directly a part of our study, really, but just a devotional kind of thought that hit me when we hear the voice of heaven say to the, I don't know why I'm picturing those two witnesses right there, but this, this is the street, and their bodies have been poured out right there. They're three and a half days decayed, and they hear a voice from heaven that says, come here. And just thinking devotionally, one of these days, those of us who have trusted in him sincerely, we'll get to hear those two words. Come here. Now, whether it's his voice or the voice of his angel, I don't know. But either way, there will be a voice that says, come here. And wouldn't it be great that if the first thing we heard after this life was come here, and the second thing we heard was, well done. Good, faithful servant.